Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Today I have Eric Osterteg. He's the CEO of Poseida Therapeutics. Poseida uses CAR-T gene therapy uh, to work to fight various cancers. Uh, their website is Poseida.com. It's spelled P-O-S-E-I-D-A.com. And I want to welcome Eric. Thank you for coming. Hi, my pleasure, Richard. Tell me about your, your background and uh, how you came to be uh, the CEO of Poseida. Well, it's not something I necessarily planned on. I knew I wanted to be a scientist from a very young age. And as I got older, I realized the difference between a scientist and a doctor, and I wanted to be both. So I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania to do an MD and a PhD. And then I also continued on to do a residency and a fellowship. And pretty much everyone, including myself, expected that I was going to have an academic career at the University of Pennsylvania. But a few things happened. I had a few inventions, you could call them, discoveries during my time as a PhD student that I wanted to get commercialized because I, I saw a lot of value in them, but the university wasn't really pursuing out licensing those things. So that resulted in the formation of a company. And then I wrote a grant. We got a lot of money and there was no one ready to take the lead of the company at the time that it needed someone. So I just started doing both. I was finishing up my residency and running the company and it just grew and grew. And we eventually spin out, spun out another company from that one that was actually called Transposogen Biopharmaceuticals. And Poseida spun out of that company about six years ago. So I've been CEO of that company and then CEO of this company for going on almost 20 years now. Okay. So what, what's the premise of Poseida? What are you guys working on? Well, if you go back to my days as a graduate student, 
always interested in the idea of gene therapy. And, and actually, even before that, I, the first time I heard about genetics as a high school student, I immediately thought, why would you try to develop a drug that treats a symptom, which you would then need to take your entire life, maybe every day, versus trying to solve the underlying problem? And most diseases have some sort of underlying genetic problem. So why not fix the problem? And that was really science fiction at that point. There was no such thing as gene therapy. But I started in college shortly after that and found myself in a lab. The head of the lab or the PI was on what's called the recombinant DNA advisory committee. And at least at that time, that was where all of the brand new cutting edge therapies would need to go for approvals before you could even think about testing them in humans. So some of the very, very, very early gene therapies would be going to that group. And then I could find out about them because of my mentor. And it was really then I decided I wanted to do gene therapy. And even then, it wasn't until I finished college and then went to medical school that gene therapy was right on the verge of becoming a, a real thing. And I worked in a couple of the cutting edge labs of gene therapy, including Jim Wilson, who's pretty well known in the, in the field, and uh, my mentor, Hag Zazian, and he worked with Kathy High. So some, some people who are really very cutting edge in gene therapy. But I, I did realize, even back then, that the technologies being used were not good enough. They weren't going to cut it long term. And the main problem was that everyone was taking something from nature, in other words, a virus, which naturally can get DNA into a person or into a person's cells. And they were trying to hijack that ability, if you will, to use it to deliver good genes. But it was just really difficult to get rid of some of the bad parts of a virus. And my vision was really instead to build technologies that would be what today would be called non-viral. You could deliver these beneficial genes in the same way that a virus does, but without any of the downsides. So I, in a nutshell, spent my entire career and entire time since I finished my training at these companies developing those technologies. Okay, so what, what kind of conditions are you trying to target Epicida? Is it all cancer-related problems, or what is it? Yeah, cancer is a pretty well-known problem. Everybody knows someone who's had cancer. I was, despite going to medical school, kind of shocked to find out that about 50% of people get cancer in their lifetime little higher for men than it is for women, but it averages out to about 50%. So you don't get cancer during your lifetime. You probably know a very close friend or relative who does get it. It's a huge problem. It's a big unmet medical need and cancer has a genetic basis. So you should be able to treat cancers with some types of gene therapies. But I'll tell you, that's not really how we got started. We actually got started with metabolic genetic diseases, things that you might be born with that you could then think about curing by sticking in a good copy of a gene. But as we grew, there were advances being made in what's now called cell therapies. And some cell therapies are gene therapies, where you take out a cell from either yourself or a donor, and then you can genetically modify them. Or sometimes I say educate them to do certain things. And one of those things you can do with a T cell, which is your body's natural killer cell, it's your body's soldier. If you get infected with a virus, this is the cell that will kill those infected cells so you get better. And you can just tune that or tweak it a little bit to say, hey, that thing over there, that's a cancer cell. You should be attacking that. 
And it can do that in a really specific manner. So yes, that's another form of gene therapy. That's what one would call ex vivo gene therapy or outside the body because you take the cells and you manipulate them outside the body. But we also do in vivo gene therapy. We can actually take our technology, put it into a person's body, for example, into the liver to potentially treat a congenital disease or one that you're born with. So it's actually both. At our company, we have both the ex vivo therapies and the in vivo, and we treat both cancer with something called CAR-T, chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. These are these heaped up or educated T-cells. We also do the what some people might consider more classic gene therapy for congenital disease. Of the cancers, I'm I'm sure there's hundreds of different kinds. Which ones are you focused on and uh, at what stage of the cancer and, you know, what are some details? Well, there was a little girl named Emma Whitehead got a blood cancer called B-cell leukemia or B-cell ALL. And at my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, she ended up being treated with, at the time, an extremely experimental therapy developed by one of my colleagues, Carl June, who's now on our scientific advisory board. And this was what I had described earlier, a CAR-T, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell. She had failed everything and probably didn't have very long to live. Amazingly, was given this type of therapy and the T-cells went in, they killed every last cancer cell. And she now to this day, I believe is nine years cancer-free. So in her case, she was cured of cancer. So you can imagine the immediate question was, can this CAR-T therapy be used for all kinds of other cancers? And The answer is yes, although many of them were not as easy. Our first therapeutic was going after another blood cancer, but this one predominantly affects people later in life, not always, but usually, called multiple myeloma. It's a cancer of your cells that make your antibodies normally, and that works pretty well too. So we've seen very good results. One of our patients is in a durable response, meaning now it's about three years. Um, so we've seen some really good responses, but unfortunately, unlike Emma, most of the patients so far treated with multiple myeloma are probably not cured. They probably will need additional therapy. So there's room for improvement. And then when you get even more difficult on the spectrum of, of tumors, there are solid tumors. And these are things that a lot of people are familiar with. This would be like breast cancer or prostate cancer or, or ovarian cancer. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And we do have CAR-T therapeutics for these diseases. The one for prostate cancer is actually already in the clinic. And in fact, we just reported one of the best responses ever seen, ever by a CAR-T therapeutic against any solid tumor, prostate cancer or otherwise. So clearly, this new type of therapy, which is called CAR-T, or as a class, it would be part of a new type of drug called immuno-oncology, using your immune system or parts of the immune system to to attack the cancer. These work. They work really well. In some patients, for some cancers, they can create cures. 
and for other patients, they can create durable responses. And honestly, I think they're just getting better and better all the time. So in five years from now or 10 years from now, this will be a major, if not the major, treat for people with cancer. So how does uh, CAR-T therapy work? How do you prepare the, uh, you know, the T-cells and how, do you, how does the whole thing happen? Yeah, if you remember, I said there's the type of cell therapy where you take your own cells, and that would be called autologous or auto for self. And then there's a form where you might take a donor cell, and that's called allogeneic, allo for other. And right now, most of the CAR-T therapies are autologous. Our two that I just told you about that are in the clinic, one for multiple myeloma, the other for prostate cancer are autologous, and they clearly can work very well. That involves taking the patient's own cells and putting them through a manufacturing process where you, again, re-educate them to attack cancer by genetic modification. And that whole process can take weeks to a little over a month. And then you put the cells back into that patient. Those cells can only be used for that patient. You wouldn't be able to give it to another patient because both those cells would attack patients' normal cells. And that person's normal cells would attack and eliminate the drug because it's considered to be an invader. So the allogeneic version, which means getting a donor, which could be a young, healthy donor, manufacturing lots of cells that might be even better at fighting cancer than you could get from an auto patient is very desirable. But it's also a little trickier because now you got to get around these immune system reactions. So to do that, you can do what's called genetic modification or gene editing. And we have a separate tool that I developed to do that called Cas Clover. And the nice thing about that is it's very specific. So you can knock out just a very specific gene without causing unwanted problems by doing that in the genome. And in essence, what you're doing is creating a cell that's invisible to the immune system so that if you put it in from a healthy donor, it will go in and do the exact same thing as an autocar. It will kill the cancer, but now it's off the shelf. Now you can make hundreds of doses. You could give that product to anybody, and that's very exciting. So where we are right now is on the verge of, of that product going into the clinic. We'll actually have two of those that we're trying to get approval from the FDA this year to go into the clinic, one for uh, also multiple myeloma, and then another one, which we think could treat lots of different solid tumors, not just prostate cancer, but many different solid tumors, including some I mentioned, like breast cancer or ovarian cancer. If someone donates their, their T cells, I mean, I would think you'd have an immune response. Um, do they need to be immunosuppressed after the treatment or during it? Or, you know, what's the difference between, the, you know, using your own cells? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, the thought I would actually call a product where you then need to immune suppress a patient so they don't have these reactions, that's not really what I would call fully allogeneic. I might call that semi-allogeneic. And there are a few companies who are taking that approach. They're modifying cells from a donor, they're putting them into a recipient, but then they have to really pound the recipient's immune system in a couple of different ways to prevent rejection of those cells and vice versa, having those cells attack the patient or the person's recipient's normal cells. And that can actually be fatal. That's something called graft-versus-host disease. The approach we took is to do multiple gene knockouts. It's called a multiplex or multiple gene editing. It's all done in a single step, but we can remove the genes both responsible for that 
graft versus host disease, but also the other way around, that the patient cells or the recipient cells can't attack. That's what I refer to as sort of invisible. They're like ninja CAR T cells after that. So we have figured that out. It wasn't easy, but it took a couple years of research. And now those are the cells exactly, those fully allogeneic, off-the-shelf cells are the ones that we're about to go into a clinical trial with. Again, what are some of the obstacles that you need to have that, well, what are some of the obstacles that are present? I know you knocked out several genes. Does that appear to be enough? Are there trade-offs to knocking out so many genes where the cells won't function properly? You know, what, what does it look like going forward so far? Yeah, good question. There's actually a term for that where if you knock out the genes, maybe the product doesn't work as well. I, I didn't coin this, but some people in the space call it the allotax. And our product uniquely in the space is able to work better than even the auto version. At least we've seen that in all of our preclinical animal model studies. And that, again, took a lot of research, but we figured out how to make it, I think, even better than the auto in terms of how efficacious or how much uh, you will see this kill the cancer. But, and I'll, I'll tell you how we did that in, in a second. It's, it's a really interesting type of cell. It's, it's not just the tools you use to modify the cell, but it's the type of the cell in the final product that matters. Not all T cells are equal. So not all CAR-T products are equal. And I'll tell you about the one that we think is the, the most desirable. The other issue, which is related to cell type, though, is toxicity. And toxicity for other CAR-T companies has been a problem to the point that some of these products have to be given, almost all of them really have to be given in a hospital setting with usually an ICU present to deal with the potential toxicities. Sometimes you have to give other drugs to knock down the toxicities. So, so they're powerful treatments, but they do have some side effects. And another problem has been cost, which we think we can get around by making many, many doses of this allogeneic from a single donor, not just one or a dozen, but, but literally hundreds of doses. So if you think about it, getting over those hurdles of toxicity, needing to give it at, at a hospital, lowering the cost. This is all accessibility. This would be the thing that makes these treatments very widely accessible, widely available. So how do we do that? That's complicated, but a lot of it has to do with our platforms and which type of cells you're able to modify. And I personally find it amusing sometimes that people don't think about this, but it should be kind of obvious that the type of cell you put in to a person is going to affect how the cell works. It's a cell therapy, so you should be very thoughtful about the type of cell you're putting in a person. And here is where the statement, not all T cells are created equally is, is applicable. Because just like for every cell in your body, there's a precursor, there's a stem cell, your T cells also have a stem cell. And that's the cell that naturally if you got infected with a virus like yellow fever virus, other examples, where you have lifelong immunity, this is the cell type responsible for it. So imagine you get infected with yellow fever, 30 years from now, you get reinfected. You have what's called memory B cells. And those, those are the cells that would immediately start making antibodies against the virus. But you also have memory T cells. Those are the cells that would immediately start killing the cells infected with the virus. So you have to have a cell that would last decades or even a lifetime and that cell type is what's called TSCM or stem cell, stem cell memory, TSCM. So it's an uncommon cell type, but we have a technology that can deliver that good, beneficial, your therapeutic transgene that tells the T cell 
what cancer to attack, we can specifically deliver it into these desirable TSEM cells. So it turns out that that has a lot of advantages. One, just like the non-genetically modified version, those cells can live a long time in patients. And we showed that we've had two-year, what's called complete response with multiple myeloma. So no evidence whatsoever of, of cancer for over two years. And that's not even the longest response we've seen. So durability is good. It's also associated with the best responses. So the more stemness you can get in your product, the better responses you're going to see in the clinic. And we think that this is really the key to getting CAR-T working against solid tumors. And that's why we've had success there, where so far others have, have not. So the name of the game is getting this desirable TSCM or stem cell type in high percentages in your final product. That's why our allogeneic or off the the shelf version, we think we've got bet even better than the auto because it turns out these younger healthy donors have percentage of these young healthy TSEM cells. Is it so these particular cells, do they literally live for decades or do they have a memory that is then passed on to their, you know, their progeny? Are they dividing and creating progeny that have the memory or again, it's, it's literally the cell that encountered the, uh, you know, the virus 20 years ago that's, that's reacting later? Well, it's, it, they are long-lived, but they also have a property called self-renewal. So you're, you're kind of touching on both, where a more mature cell, one that's differentiated into what we would call an effector cell, that's like a, a killer that would be your drug. Our product is more like a pro-drug. It's the thing that makes your drug, and it can make it in potentially unlimited numbers. But to really answer your question, it's, it's a little bit of both. These cells can self-renew, so they make perfect of themselves, which are also stem cells. And that's how you get the genetic information that they have that's encoded passed down for decades. But then they also have what's called multipotency. They can differentiate into all the different T cells of your body. Your it's called helper T cells, you have cytotoxic or CD8 positive T cells, things called regulatory T cells. Well, they all come from this very unique TSEM cell type. Okay, so so if someone has a cancer and they're injected with a whole bunch of these cells, what's been observed in you know in mouse models, whatever models you've run, uh, do the cells differentiate into the proper ones to you know to fight the cancer better, or what happens? Yeah, exactly. In animal models, and when I say an animal model, it's really a furry test tube in the sense that you're taking an actual human cancer, sometimes very aggressive cancers, and you're putting them in an animal, and the animal then acts like a host. It is the closest you can really get to a human with a cancer before actually going into a human. And when you put these cells into these mice with human cancers, what they will do is go to the bone marrow and go to the lymph node, which is where these cells normally live, and they start doing their thing. They will differentiate, they will mature into the drug, your effector cells. And those cells start chipping away at the tumor chipping away, chipping away until the tumor is completely gone. And then what happens is pretty amazing. The cells that are more effector-like that came from the stem cells, because they're shorter lived, they'll die off. But because they're, the TSEM cells are self-renewing, they can persist. They can make more of themselves. They can persist. And the way to really think about this is a vaccination. It's very much like getting a secondary vaccination, in this case, against that particular tumor. So if that tumor were to relapse, or in the case of an animal model, if you were to re-challenge or re-implant, stick more of that same tumor into that animal without re-administering your product, you get a re-response. It comes back normally. So you remember that I, I said we had that patient with a two-year 
complete response, no evidence of cancer whatsoever. That patient, after two years, all of our patients leave the trial to go into what's called long-term follow-up. And during long-term follow-up, eventually these cells came down lower and lower until they got to an undetectable level. And when that happened, the patient relapsed, the cancer came back, but then amazingly, more of the drug after all that time. So it's almost like a combination between cell therapy and a vaccine. What's, um, I mean, in response to chemotherapy, you know, tumors, first of all, are heterogeneous. And then in response to chemo, they become even more differentiated heterogeneous. If this therapy is given alone, I can see, okay, you know, the memory may work, but if it's given in conjunction with chemo or before and after or radiation, I mean, do you think it would still work? Because again, the, uh, the clonal lineages would have changed maybe so much that it'd be unrecognizable. Yeah, it really depends on your target. You need a clean target, one that's present on the tumor. So when I say present, you would want it to be there on most or all of the tumor cells and on most or all of the tumor cells in most patients. Because if the target you're, you're going after is not present, obviously you can't kill the, the target. And in some cases, with those cell or tumor are able to get away they lose of the cells already had lost the targets, which were then selected for. And that's called antigen escape. Now on, on a really good target, that's much harder for the cell to do. So you, you would see antigen escape less frequently or hopefully never. But there's another thing you can do, just like for when you think about treating viruses with an antiviral, the virus can mutate and likewise some percent of the virus would be resistant to that drug and then that would grow out. But if you hit it with multiple drugs, same time, can't do that. There's no one virus that's got the mutations to escape all the drugs. So it can be incredibly effective to combine these different drugs. Well, with CAR-T, it's the same idea. You can put different molecules that you're targeting at the same time on the surface of your T-cell And that would make it very difficult for the cancer to mutate away from that. Now, a problem that other companies have had in the field is that they use a virus to deliver their good transgene. And when they do that, they have a very limited cargo. There's only only so much stuff you can put in, only so much genetic cargo you can put inside of your virus, whereas our non-viral technology doesn't have that limitation. So right now, everything I just told you, both the auto and the aloe versions of CAR-T are single target cars. But we're already in our pipeline making what we call dual cars. They express two fully functional car molecules on the surface of every cell. And we've shown in the lab that we can do three. We've shown we can do four. You could probably do more than that. And that, I think, will be the next generation of CAR-T. You'll start to see therapeutics. They're more sophisticated in a way that it will be harder for cancer to escape by having any one mutation. And that gets to your question about the tumor heterogeneity. Going towards the um, solid tumors versus liquid, why do you think that uh, the current CAR-T therapies don't seem to work well against solid tumors? They just, they're just The uh, T-cells are just unable to migrate into the mass of the tumor? Or I would think as you peel away the outside layers, let's say, and kill the, the cells that you reveal the inner and then can get to them. Well, there are a lot of theories. So that's the $10 billion question. And I've heard probably all of them. One is exactly what you just said. Maybe T-cells can't access solid tumors as well. But that theory, because all over the place, they're, they're able to get everywhere in your body. They evolved to do that. They have to do that to get rid of infections. There's other theories that solid tumors have hypoxia in the center of the tumor that can inhibit T-cells. There are theories that 
things called checkpoint inhibitors are expressed, which make the tumor microenvironment difficult for the tumor to kill. Depending on the solid tumor, that's probably all true to a certain extent. But when you think about how CAR-T works, it's really quite amazing. It's really amazing that it works at all because it's like if you said, hey, I'm going to cut a toaster oven in half and I'm going to cut a lamp in half and I'm going to paste the two things together and I'm going to have something that makes toast and can be a light. It would never work, right? But not that different from how CAR-T works. You're taking a receptor that's artificially not normally expressed on the T-cell, but asking it to signal the way that a T-cell normally does. And the reason that works is because these receptors are mechanically activated. They're called anisotropic mechanical receptors, but all that matters is that it's the binding and then the torsion on that molecule that releases ultimately the killing molecules of that T-cell. So sometimes I say a T-cell is just a bag of killing enzymes. And if you can target it to the right place through this locking key system, a receptor and its ligand, you will release your, your called perforin and granzyme, your killing enzymes, and you will kill. So why has CAR-T not worked as well against solid tumor? Well, when you think about the first patient I told you about, Emma Whitehead, her cancer is right there in the blood. It's really easy for the T-cells to see it if you will, to interact, to bind and kill ultimately, in her case, every last tumor cell, every single one, and she was cured. But when you go to the solid tumor spectrum, a lot of the things I talked about are probably true to various extents, which make it harder, not impossible, but harder for a T-cell to kill a tumor. So when I mentioned that these effector cells, the more differentiated cells, are short-lived, you're not getting complete killing of your tumor in the short time that those cells are in the body. But if you have this PSCM stem cell approach, now you can make wave after wave after wave of these effectors. And they just start chipping away at the tumor and shrinking it very much like you just said. We think killing it from the outside in until it's just completely gone. And that's exactly what we've seen in all of our animal models. We have models for human prostate cancer, but with our next therapeutic um, that we will be fully allogeneic after the multiple myeloma one. That's a pan-solid tumor target. So we've tested that in human triple negative breast cancer or a very difficult to treat breast cancer. We've tested it for ovarian cancer. And it always works the same. It goes in, it engrafts, it makes wave after wave of your drug. It chips away at the tumor and then the tumor's completely gone. So the way I think about it, it's like, imagine you shot a BB at a brick wall. It's not like the BB isn't doing anything. It's just not doing much. You know, it's making a tiny little nick and then it's bouncing off. But if you've got a machine gun that can make unlimited BBs and you're just shooting one after another at the brick wall, eventually you're going to blow a hole into it. Well, that's what stem cell memory gets you. Have you been able to profile the types of T cells and what kind of, you know, receptors and antigens and stuff they have on them? Once you do this, this treatment, you know, how do they look different from the current T-cell population being produced? Or is it a matter of just not enough for being produced? Well, we have looked at very carefully the molecules on the surface of these T-cells going in. And then in an animal model, it's pretty easy to, to look at them over time. So again, what you see going in is a very stem-like population. And then over time, it will differentiate to make your soldiers. It will start chipping away at the tumor, killing the tumor. but after the tumor is completely eliminated, you see a loss of those soldiers, the effector cells, and it just contracts back, if you will, to the stemness, the stem cell type. So 
we didn't discover TSCM cells, but they're relatively recently discovered in humans, meaning less than 10 years that they've even been known about. It turns out our technology works really well in these TSCM cells. It works both good, uh, well to deliver your transgene, your therapeutic transgene, and also it works well for this genetic modification you need to make the allogeneic versions. So yeah, we've looked quite carefully at these. Interesting thing is while other companies have much lower level of these desirable TSCM stem cells, they have seen the same correlations we have. In other words, even though they have lower levels, they see a correlation with products that have more of this and best responses in the clinic. So this isn't just us that's saying it now. In fact, there was a Nature paper about this just weeks ago. Everyone sort of agrees that this is the most desirable cell type. It's just a question of how do you get it? And that's what we were able to figure out first. So if you look at our competitors, most of their products range from 0% to maybe 6% of these desirable stem cells. In our fully allogeneic products right now, we're at about 60 to 80%. So easily 10 times more than anyone else has been able to achieve. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. So where are you at in your clinical trials with this? When, when do you think it might uh, reach clinical use? The two auto programs are already in the clinical trial. The BCMA 101, we call it, BCMA 101 was our first auto CAR-T. And that had a phase two that was started about two years ago. We also then did an expanded phase one to try to treat more patients with different versions, uh, not just not different versions of the drug, but different versions of the preconditioning regimen. Like how do you prepare the patient's body to receive the cells? All of these things that we learn could be not only, of course, extrapolated to the auto programs, but also the, the allo programs. So the first solid tumor auto program is also in the clinic. And I mentioned we just had one of the best results ever seen for, for any CAR-T therapeutic against tumor. That's in a phase one clinical trial. And the two that I mentioned that would be fully allogeneic, the one for multiple myeloma, as well as the one for the pan-solid tumor called MUC1C101, those will both be filed with the FDA this year. And at least in the case of the BCMA, the multiple myeloma fully allo, we'll start seeing patient data already by the end of this year. And for the other program, probably the first quarter of next year. Okay. So when do you think you'll get full approval and this will uh, be in clinical use? Well, full approval from start to finish takes several years in these clinical trials. Sometimes you can get accelerated approval. And in fact, for our PBCMA 101, we got what's called an RMAT status from the FDA, and that's an accelerated approval status. That is um, somewhat uncommon. I think we were the very first cell therapy ever to get that for, for multiple myeloma. Um, and we'll be attempting to get that same status for our prostate cancer program and then ultimately our, our allo programs. But from start to finish, a clinical trial can take several years before you get the accelerated approval at what, what's called the BLA, and then even a little bit longer before you get full approval. All right. Well, very good. Eric, uh, before I let you go, I just want to ask, uh, where can people get more information about Poseida? I know you have Poseida.com, P-O-S-E-I-D-A.com. But are there any other locations where people can get more information and keep tabs on what you're doing? Well, there are a lot of places. The best place is probably our website where we have a lot of information on our platform technologies and specific therapeutics. But we've also done a lot of different types of interviews with the media. And now I think if you just go to do a search, for example, on, on YouTube or Google, you will find uh, a lot of information about Poseida, you might see 
previous interviews that, that I gave. And the technologies themselves have also been used by many people in academia, for example. Uh, piggyback is the name for the non-viral gene delivery system. I think there's now about 1,000, 1,000 publications using piggyback in the academic literature. Gene editing called Cas Clover. That's a little bit newer, so it's harder to find as much information about it. Um, but it's out there. And furthermore, that tool, as well as piggyback, can be used for things outside of treating humans and treating human disease. You can actually use it to modify plants or do things called bioprocessing. And so we have uh, what I call the sister companies using these technologies to do some of these other applications. They also have videos about how the technology works, and those can be found uh, also by doing Google search for either piggyback, cast clover. Well, very good, Eric. Thank you for coming on the podcast, and I appreciate you, your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.